Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the next Professional Insight podcast. Uh, One Niagara podcast. Well, well, that was the previous podcast that we did. And don't get oh, Grant on that. Subnom. Subnom. And you just missed an, a crazy story about why Trevor hasn't gotten his hair cut. But we'll move on because <laughs> yeah. nobody cares. Um, <laughs> thanks very much for joining. Uh, my name is Brandon Curry. <laughs> I'm Jeff Collins. I'm Josh. slow with that. Josh Bond. No Trevor Lindy. And we have a, a guest in today, Mr. Grant Flesh. La Flesh. La Flesh. Yeah. From the St. Catherine Standard. Hi. Thank you Thanks very for much me. for uh, coming on. My pleasure. But before we begin, um, our previous guest, um, uh, Donald Zeraldo, uh, had left a signed bottle. Which camera can I do this in? It's oh, okay. on you right there. Um, a signed bottle of his, uh, of his ice wine. Um, so whoever responds at the end of this episode, either on Facebook or Twitter or whoever, what year did Donald Zeraldo get his liquor, uh, the first uh, winery license since Prohibition? What year was do it? We you count? Can, no, you can't. <laughs> no, <laughs> not eligible. We'll do so. You know, not not just to to finish it there. We'll make sure that um, anybody that answers it correctly, so it's not first person to comment, anybody that answers correctly, right. say maybe a week later, sure. we'll, we'll put all those names into uh, a hat into a hat, and we'll do a draw. Yes. Is that fair? That's fairest fair. way to I do think it, that's right? That's way to Rather do than, you know, mind you, the first to comment could be good because that means they're now you know, subscribed what's to What's even better, uh, what you can do is, TV. Is, is number them from one to whatever, and then Google, Google pick it. They oh. randomly pick numbers. That's cool. Okay. Apple, Apple doesn't do that. Google does. Right. Does anybody at the table remember the retail value? I do. Yeah. 80, it was eighty nine ninety nine. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a question? Do uh, I win one? No. Okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Grant. <laughs> Mr. Lafleche, how yes, are you, sir? Good. Good. Um, thanks very much for coming in. My pleasure. Uh, you've uh, you know you've you've won a couple of awards. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fun few months. Congratulations, sure. Thank formally. You. Well, I, I've you. I've I've said that to you informally yes. on on the book of faces and well, I see, on the I, see, I see you at the hub. You see me downtown. quite a bit actually. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you mainly won that award um, regarding the all the chairs men. Uh, correct? Yeah, I mean, for Ontario Newspaper Awards, National Newspaper Awards, CJF, uh, Canadian Journalist Foundation, uh, Canadian Association of Journalists, and then the granddaddy of them all, the Michener's, was all related to all the chairsmen. And you were up against some pretty big uh, heavy hitters from, like, like, the Globe. Well, yeah, I mean, just as, not to pat myself on the back so hard that I will. My own wrist okay. will snap off. But there was something really delicious about the National Newspaper Awards, which is... Um, uh, we won the George Brown Award for investigative journalism for all the chairs men. It was the first year it was named after George Brown, who was the founder of the Globe and Mail. It the awards were held at the palatial offices of the Globe and Mail uh, in downtown Toronto. I mean, the, the best view of Toronto, by the way, is in their conference center, which is uh, amazing. Uh, I was up against a Globe and Mail team, and the guy handing out the award uh, was the publisher of the Globe and Mail. So we, we beat them in their own house, which was which was a Talk lot. Talk about fun. pushing an elephant up the stairs. Yeah, pretty well, pretty well. But I mean, it just it you know it, it just goes to show you um, how important investigative journalism is these days and why it needs to be done. And it doesn't matter if you're the St. Catherine Standard or the Globe and Mail. You know, if you if you do this job well, if you adhere to a very strict kind of process and code of ethics and so on, I mean, you'll get there and you'll be able to do really important work. Uh, it's just exhausting, and it. I mean, I didn't really sleep for for a year and a half, really. <laughs> um, we were gonna. I'm, I'm gonna go into. We're gonna go into that uh, onto that process. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I'm, we're not gonna ask you on who or anything like that. I. Th that's not where we're gonna. You go. could try, but you're but not you, gonna. I get know. Who are your but, sources? I mean, oh, I'll tell I, you now. Yeah, <laughs> now I'll tell you. Um, th but I would just want to say, like, I mean, there's there's articles that you write that I disagree with. But there's articles that you write that I'm 100% behind, and that's when I know that you're a great reporter, and that you you do you and your colleagues do great work because um, I can I can read one week and go no, no I don't <laughs> agree with it opinion pieces I'm not talking factual pieces yeah I don't I haven't written columns and I I was I kind of existed as a columnist for like four years for a while yeah um, and then in 2000 late 2015 early 2016. We were still owned by Post Media, yep. and we got 25% of our staff cut. Yep. And so my editor, Angus Scott, had to make some choices in terms of who he had left and how he was going to deploy us. And so he made the decision um, 
to cancel my column and move me back onto investigative features, which is how I started my career. 2016. That was in 2016. Yeah. So, um, so I, yeah, I haven't written an opinion column for the paper. I've written a couple of explanatory columns yep. to kind of talk about our investigative process, but I haven't done like the, the Grant Rants column in, in, in a number of years now. So, and I, I'm, I mean, I, I have a subscription, so that's... Thank uh, you for keeping us gainfully employed. No problem. Yeah. Um, so how... Was that, a, like, okay, very ignorant on the writing community? Like, mm-hmm. I don't understand that industry. I'm a financial guy. Yep. Um, so was that a, trough, a, a rough or difficult transition to go from a Grants Rants opinion column over to investigative journalism? Or not, is it the same not, skill set? It, but I think to- you said you started off in investigative Yeah, it was, it's a totally different skill set. So okay. I started as a, I, did, I was a crime reporter for like 10 years. Okay. And so I was doing the mob. I did a lot of work on the Hells Angels for a long time. That's how most people kind of got to know me around here. Um, and then um, I started doing like a like a like a occasional column. Then it turned into weekly. Then it turned to biweekly. And then it became a full time uh, thing. But it's a totally different, totally different skill set. Because when you're writing an opinion column, most of the time, I mean, I would break news in the column, but most of the time, it's like, you, you know, you've written a piece about the real estate market. I have some opinion on the real estate market. My opinion may be well researched. Um, but it's, it's sort of my my personal view as a columnist on something. Investigative journalist journalism, my personal view just doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it's completely irrelevant. You know, so I may think uh, you know a particular political party because I've been writing about politics so long. We we'll use politics. I could think a particular party or a particular politician is good, bad, or indifferent. Doesn't matter. It's you know what does the evidence show? And you spend a lot of time building your case to be able to say, well, here, here's what the evidence points to. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Uh, it's a whole other kettle of fish. It's, it's like being a detective without the ability to file a search warrant. Yeah. So, and in, in that, did, were you hesitant? Because obviously you get painted with a certain brush mm-hmm. from your opinion pieces. Mm-hmm. Some people would say that you're liberal. Some people would say that you're conservatives. Because yep. you actually were one of the few journalists that actually got an, uh, an interview with Stephen Harper. A lot of people don't. Oh, yeah, we got I, we got them four times, right? Mm-hmm. So um, th- there's that there's that tribalist view. So did how did you go about what, what was your methodology to go about this to to, to kind of shed yeah. that any any? Yeah, for, first of all, I wasn't happy. I mean, there was a whole period of a few months there where I was just like really angry because I loved doing the column. It was a ton of fun. It was well read. It helped the paper. Um, but from Angus's uh, Angus Scott's point of view, and he was right. Um, we needed to have more investigative work in the paper. You know, if, if, I mean, there's two ways that the, the news industry has handled cutbacks, right? Um, you go down the route of like CNN or the National Post, uh, which is, say, very heavily weighted on opinion, right? So if this was a CNN studio, you all would be talking heads. That, so there'd be somebody who did the news and then Anderson Cooper or whoever would turn to you for and say, well, what do you guys think about, you know, whatever. Just analyze the snot out of it. Analyze the snot out of it, exactly. Um, But there's very little reporting. The Post is the same way. The Post is some great reporters, but they're very heavily weighted toward opinion. Our approach was to say, no, we're going to devote what resources we have to investigations. Um, The first thing I did out the gate was, uh, it was a two or three part thing on fentanyl, which had just, you know, we had just become a, a giant thing. Um, and that was kind of all I needed to kind of get away from the opinion side and go back to uh, sort of hard-boiled uh, investigative reporting. It's just really a matter of sometimes checking your own view at the door. And, and it doesn't matter if I think XYZ is good, bad, or indifferent. It just boils down to what does the evidence show? What are the people we're talking to actually saying? Um, and as long as you stay focused on that, it's okay. It's just, it's a bit like, you know, if you... If you uh, do both speed skating and hockey, and you've got one set of skates on that you're used to skating, and you put the speed skates on afterwards. If you've ever done that, by the way, it's yeah, yeah you know, it's it, you it's completely not even, different skating. Yeah, you try to do little choppy <laughs> hockey crossovers in your speed skates, you're gonna no. cut your own shins off, yeah. right? So it's it's a bit like that. It's the same similar kind of process. It's just a different different approach to it. And then the phone rings, and. 2017 probably in and around there about some inside information of what's going on. Yeah, it wasn't a phone call. Um, I've written about this to some extent. So what I'm telling you now, we've already yep, published. Yep. And there's just so, there's still some stuff at this point I can't talk about because we have to protect our nope, sources. That's and okay. When you be great when you, for our podcast, though. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Exclusive. Breaking news. <laughs> yeah, news <laughs> all of my sources. Um, we got the the way it started was in November 2017. 
Okay. Um, there was a source of mine who said he he was speaking on behalf of somebody else, okay. who said there's this person who has information that you probably want to look at, um, and I, I the initial communication with this person who turned out to be a whistleblower uh, was through this intermediary for a while, okay. and then there were some eventually some back and forth. I have an encrypted email system that I've been using for a couple of years. Really, you didn't turn your phone off? No, that was my laptop. It's fine. <laughs> um, in, in any case, uh, I've been using this encrypted email yeah, system, sure. so we were able to communicate that way for a while, and then we finally met um, face-to-face and started getting into the nuts and bolts of it. But, I mean, we had to, from the, from the outset, it was very clear that whatever this person had was going to be substantial. Like. So I had to start taking, um, it, sort of immediately taking elaborate lengths to protect that person. Um, it's sort of equivalent to... You know, the, the way the story goes is during the Watergate investigation when, when Bob Woodward wanted to talk to Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat, Deep, Mark Felt would, would get the Times that was delivered to Bob Woodward's apartment in Washington. He'd circle page 20. Then Woodward would put a red flag in a flower pot in his balcony, which would signal he was ready to meet, and then they would meet in this parking garage in the middle of the night. This is the digital age, so you don't have to necessarily go to that <laughs> kind of extreme. But that's how it started. And so my formal investigation started in November 2017, and then we didn't publish our first story till April 2018. Did you have a cool last name like Deep Throat for the guy? I do, but I, I, I have several of my sources have code names. Yeah. Um, we use code names, encrypted emails. Uh, burner cell phones. Really? Do you um, really? Oh yeah. I mean, the the, the well, problem stuff's just, pretty hot. Like, right? no, that's, that's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, that's pretty interesting. The 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 issue was that there were you know we were looking directly at members of regional council and and senior members of regional staff, including the CAO at the time, Carm D'Angelo, all of which had shown themselves to be particularly litigious. Yeah. Um, they you know staff were uh, this was a big part of our first story in April. The morale at the region was terrible. Staff was constantly uh, afraid of uh, professional or legal reprisals. Um, so we had to really go at to lengths, not only to protect them, but the other problem was because they were on ba- what we call background. So just as a quick primer, when, you, when you're looking at the way investigative journalists work, there's three kinds of interviews. There's this kind of interview, which is on the record, right? Which is so great, by the way. Thanks for your comment. Yes. Uh, <laughs> then, there's, then there's off the record, which means uh, you and I can have a conversation, but I'm not using any of it. I'm not. None of it will be quoted. None of it will be. And you're sourced. bound to that. And right? I'm bound to you that. You can't. I can't. Which touch is it. If, it's, if it's off the record, I can't do anything with it really at all unless somebody else somewhere provides that information. And then there's uh, background or sometimes called deep background, which means um, I'm not going to attribute anything you've told me to you, but I may still quote you as an anonymous source, or I may use the information that you gave me in a story. The tricky bit there, though, is that. Um, even you, you could be a source who's completely unimpeachable, right? Like, like you, Brandon Curry, you know exactly what you're talking about on a particular issue. For what, for all kinds of reasons, you know, we've decided to protect your identity. I still can't use it on its own unless it's extraordinary. So I have to go and find other sources who can confirm what you say, and that's part of the reason that investigation took so long initially, was because we we ended up building a network of sources of I think by the time we were done, like a dozen people who were able to confirm and corroborate and add more detail to pieces of that story. So it took a really long time uh, to put all that together. But a great piece. Yeah. That's but we, be, that's pretty nerve-wracking, too, hiding, you know, like keeping all this covert and all that. Well, and you have to be careful how you write it because yeah. there are – I mean, I can tell you this, that, that the members of regional council who would opine uh, as to who they thought our sources were never got it right. Yeah. Um, and and no, you wouldn't tell us if they did anyway. No. <laughs> so. um, but you know, we we've been pretty good at, at protecting our yeah. sources uh, to this point, which is part part of the reason they trust us. Which is and then so then now because of that, people are going to you for everything because of the great work that you guys did. I'm sure well, well, yeah. So, it, but it becomes you, like, so. Yeah, but what happens now is like somebody will stop. Yeah, but they'll, you know, like, oh, I have a story for you, but I can't put my name to it. And what's the story? Well, you know, I went to this restaurant, and they got my order wrong, and the <laughs> waiter was rude or whatever, you know. Yeah, you get those. They didn't cook my steak to my satisfaction. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's super. We got a story? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so then how, okay, so then when you first heard the details, 
um, were did your jaw drop and go like, hey, this is something that I have to pursue, or or did Angus give you the resources right off the bat? Like, how does that work? Um, so initially, it was all kind of done uh, alongside everything else I was doing, you know, for that day's paper because we didn't quite know what we had. Um, when when I met with that initial whistleblower, we got some documents at that point, and that became a challenge on its own because they were digital documents, and. The interesting thing about digital documents is that when you create one, whether it's a PDF, whether it's a Word document, there's information that gets embedded in that document that can tell you when it was created. Um, if you used, say, your own your own uh, Word document account or your professional account at your office, you, you're logged into the system. That gets recorded in the document itself. So there was all. It wasn't just the documents themselves, which were jaw dropping and. Uh, later, I think in the summer, in, in July, there's a photo that um, our photographer Julie Josak took of myself and Bill Sacha. I saw, yeah. At, where we had gotten uh, our hands on some uh, an, uh, some new documents that we were, were going through, and Bill and I are covering our faces because we can't believe, like that's the holy crap. That was one of several holy crap moments. Um, but the st stuff that made our jaw drop was not just the content of that initial document we had, which showed that Carm D'Angelo was given or had downloaded a list of confidential information on other CAO candidates in 2016. Um, but we knew from the metadata on that document that it had come from Robert Damboise, uh, who was at the time then Chair Caslin's policy director. So, so D'Angelo had at that point at least one document downloaded that had been created by a member of Caslin's staff. Caslin was also the chair of the hiring committee. Um, but what ended up happening was I had to kind of build the case while I was doing other stuff. And then once I kind of had a critical mass of material, like I knew, you know, I knew the, had a good grasp on the facts. I knew what this document was. Uh, I had verified it. I had built a fairly substantial case from sources inside the region. I actually had to write a dossier for my editor and for Torstar and say, here's, here's the story. Here's the case. Here's, here's how we've done everything. It was like a six page thing. Um, and then we had some high-level meetings, and then they went, all right, go, go to it. And so then we thought... It freed you up a little bit then after, at that point? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the other thing, and I've talked about this at some of the, the, um, the awards galas I was at, which was, it freed me up, but you got to remember, in, when I started at The Standard in 1998, I had no gray hair uh, then, <laughs> uh, we had an editorial staff of 39 at the St. Catherine Standard, reporters and editors. Um, now we have, an ed we have five reporters for The Standard. Uh, during the height of the All the Chairs Men stuff, we had four. Uh, we have two editors and two photographers, but they also work for the, the Tribune here in Welland, and they work for the Niagara Falls Review. So they're not dedicated to just the standard, which, which causes all kinds of uh, issues. So when I'm off, when I'm freed up to go pursue this, that means my colleagues have to pick up the slack, right. and they have to start covering stuff that I might otherwise cover every day, because we got to put it in the newspaper every yeah, day. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and then, you know, when this really got he hot and heavy, uh, else, uh, Alan Benner and uh, Bill Sawchuk were covering pieces of this as it was happening because we were investigating. they're following region. Yeah. So we were investigating the past as, and that was causing stuff to happen in the present. We had to cover both at the same time, right? So it ended up kind of taking over, uh, taking over the newsroom. But we thought it was going to be over in April. Like, you mentioned that. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was going to be over. I thought that we, you know, we were, we, the first one was a really good story. We'd spent all those months putting it together. Um, it certainly showed that the hiring of Carm D'Angelo uh, had been tainted. Um, that, you know, we, we had all these pieces and we thought, well, there'll be some fallout. Uh, probably for Caslin, Caslin staff and, and Carm D'Angelo and maybe even the selection committee to some degree. And then it just that we did that was the tip of the iceberg we had no idea how far down the rabbit hole we would end up going so we've gone from that one document that we know he downloaded to seven uh we're still waiting for the ombudsman's report uh you know there have been a bunch of guys fired since then most of that council got wiped out yeah in the last municipal election i mean the rabbit hole was much deeper than than i knew when i published that first story hmm. so oh, i got so many questions um <laughs> like oh, i guess how did you handle all this information, um, keeping it quiet? Like, you know what I mean, guys? Like, I mean, like, I mean, obviously yeah. we have, you know, we have fiduciary responsibility to keep our client details mm -hmm. secret. I mean, you, you in some way do as well by your code, mm -hmm. essentially. But how did you, like, how did you 
interact with some of these individuals in theory. Same with, you know, knowing full well going, like, I know so much stuff on you, it's not even funny. Like, how did you sleep at night? How did you sleep at night? How well, you... We, we, you, do, you don't sleep not because of any kind of um, guilt. It's just the stress of... There were two things. It was the stress of it because the stakes are really high. You get a story like this. I mean, if, if this story had been wrong, the standard would probably be a wholly owned subsidiary of Carnby Angelo Incorporated at yes. this point, right? Yeah. Um, if you're going to go down the road where you're saying, you know, some, something inappropriate has been done by these public figures and, and you know, it's been done the, the way which uh, we found out it was done, you can't get it wrong. If you get it substantially wrong, like your credibility shot, you're done. You're, you're done, done as a newspaper. You're done as a reporter. I mean, our, our whole currency is is credibility, right? Um, so uh, the reason you didn't sleep though was because the story took off in a way that I hadn't previously experienced, and so I was I was doing work like around the clock. So I'd work, you know, I'd get up early, do interviews before my you know sort of nine o'clock meeting at the newspaper. You'd work your regular shift, produce stories for the next day's paper. Uh, I'd be meeting people at, you know, a husky truck stop in the middle of the night uh, to talk about whatever it was. Were you ever followed? Do you think you were? Yeah, no, we were, I was followed at least once um, that I know of. That you know of? That I know of. Uh, and, uh, unfortunately, I was just going to a dinner date, so it wasn't, you know, yeah. wasn't a big deal. Um, were, you, the, were you living in a constant fear all the time? It's not a question what? of fear. It's just, it's just a question of being, it's just a question of being cautious, right? Yeah. It's a question of understanding that the, the people who have decided to give you information have done so at a huge risk. Mm -hmm. So you have an obligation to protect them. Um, I can only, I, I mean, nobody will find out from us who these sources were. Um, the, the big fear is always that, especially as this story began to snowball, that some of these sources might feel a little bit emboldened and start walking around the office and go, hey, Brandon, you see this story in the standards? Yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm deep, I'm deep throat, <laughs> right? Um, Fortunately, they did not do that, so it wasn't so much of a worry. But they, there's an incrementalism to investigative journalism that, you I mean, in the movies, it's sort of like in a lot of the times, uh, there's the, you know, the work, you do the big story, it lands, everything is fantastic. Um, that's really not how it works. I mean, you look at, I mean, just if you want to see the movies to kind of get a better sense of it, look at uh, All the President's Men, yep. uh, Spotlight. Um, the post, I and mean, you'll see the closer depiction of reality, which is you're, you're, you're trying each time you publish to get to the, the best version of the truth you can, but there's always questions left unanswered. So there's this incremental kind of building of the story piece by piece. So we ran that first story in April, and then it, as, it, as it rolled out, but remember between April and July, there wasn't a ton of activity on that story. I had bits and pieces, like you know, we found out that Robert Damboise had been acting as a political agent uh, on behalf of uh, Kaslan and his allies, including pretending he was somebody he wasn't to try to get dirt on the town of Pelham, which was sort of unrelated to all the chair's men. There were a couple other pieces, but it wasn't until July that we ran a, a second expose, uh, July 26th, which was the great fulcrum point of this whole thing, because that was the craziest day of the entire, uh, the entire affair. Uh, and then we had another three major exposés after that. But in between them, there's all these little stories that we're doing, little pieces. So I think we're at close to 60 stories now. Uh, you know, four or five major exposés, but dozens of smaller pieces that follow up on new bits of information as we get them and confirm them. So were you worried when you released these couple stories about your reputation, about the attacks that you would have gotten on social media? Because you know the tribalism that does take place. Oh, it's not just tribalism. Look, I mean, there's a, th th we live in a whole other era now. Mm -hmm. There are anonymous Twitter accounts. Twitter is an awful place. It's yeah. awful, yeah. It's, I don't like it. If I didn't have to use it for my job every day, I just would never... The, the day I finish reporting is the day I delete my Twitter. As Ricky account. Gervais says, it's the, it's the toilet stall oh, of the world. it's awful. And so... Twitter. What, it, what is. it really is. No, it's, a, it's you guys, any of you guys read Neil Gaiman? You should. There's a, he has a collection of short stories called uh, Trigger Warnings, and there's a piece called The Uninventor, and the whole story is about a guy who uninvents things that are terrible for, that's yeah. why we don't have flying cars, because they were bad, and so he went and uninvented them. And the story ends mm -hmm. in this British pub with everybody checking their phones to look on Twitter, and he says, to, what, are you, what are you doing? Oh, this is Twitter. You know, and the guy's like, oh. I'll be right back. And the <laughs> idea that he's, he's gone off to uninvent Twitter. But no, there's, there's a small kind of army of, of anonymous Twitter accounts and bots whose entire job it is is to attack 
I mean, attack the credibility of journalists, attack, you know, political opponents, that kind of, and it's happened here, and it still goes on to this day. Um, they don't have huge amounts of followers, but they're very clearly attached to uh, some of the folk that we were investigating uh, directly. Um, they have uh, come after myself and my colleagues. On a very, they've never denied the story. That's the thing that's super interesting about it. Nobody ever came to us and demanded a correction, an apology, said we got elements of the story wrong or the story was wholly wrong. What did happen was uh, they attacked us on a personal level. Uh, they used anonymous Twitter accounts to do so. And you know, then they launched you know, their own kind of partisan news websites to, to try to do some of this stuff as well. Um, so it, it's, it's a different kind of era now. It, we're, it, it, it's exhausting because it's every day you show up and the, you know, my blocked list on Twitter is extremely long now. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because you don't want to, as a journalist, put yourself into a tribal silo. So you don't want to, to because of the way the algorithms on social media work, if you're always looking at conservative stuff, you will just see more conservative stuff right. or liberal stuff or Game of Thrones or whatever it is you're looking at. So as a journalist, you want to make sure that you're following sort of this very wide, you know, swath of opinions so that you can kind of, you know, what's, what's, what's liberal chatter, what's conservative chatter, what's NDP chatter, so on and so forth. But I mean, some of these people, you just have to block. You just have to because they're, they are just mean, nasty, spiteful, awful people. And they will use the excuse, oh, well, we have to be anonymous to tell the truth. Well, you're not telling the truth. Yeah, and that's from both sides, too. Well, it's, it's, it's from both sides, and it's from weird stuff. So, like, I know you are part of that group that's advocating One Niagara yep. as part of this restructuring. Well, yep. a new thing has just emerged. Yeah. The four-city model. Yeah, right. The four-city committee. Right. The four-city committee is anonymous. Yes. They claim mm. – well, they, they have a website and a Twitter account that says, oh, we're a committee of politicians and experts and industry leaders. And I said, well, who are you? Yeah. Crickets. Yeah. Crickets. They don't want to say. Now, we do know, for instance, who was advocating a four-city yep. model. Yep. So we could take a guess at who might be behind it. Yep. Um, and I think that's, that, that's the, I think you hit the nail right on the head, right? Where we actually did a presentation to Fenn and Ceiling yeah. through the proper channel. Yeah. Set up well, and you're not, like, but you're not trying to hide anything. No. Like, like yourself and the people who are involved no. in, in that group, yep. you're saying, here's who we are. Here's why we think this is a good idea, yep. et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. Here's our 26-page yeah. document that we submitted to Fenn and Zealand. But it's it's super interesting when you have a group yeah. that wants to say, we're a panel of experts, but, the, you know, who, who are the experts? <laughs> well, let's yeah. know who it is. Could, could be the five of us, and what are we expert on, right? Like, it, it's, it's it, it, so take that kind of approach, but make it very visceral and very nasty. Yes. Keyboard um, warriors, basically. They're, right? they're yeah. keyboard warriors, but they're, they're, they're done to try to discredit you. And then, so what was happening simultaneous to that was there were members of council who were engaging in the same behavior. So you had uh, people like uh, former counselor David Barrick, who went on on these long soliloquies about the dangers of anonymous sources and investigative reporting. Um, they tried to whitewash the entire CAO thing with the, uh, the uh, Hubberman report, and where they passed, afterwards they passed a motion apologizing to Carm D'Angelo and to Rob Damboise. And Bob Gale, who's the, still the counselor for Niagara Falls, um, got up. And I'm, I'm sitting in media row with Bill Sachuk, and he points over to me and says, and we should, we should vote to do something about him meaning do something about me or the standard. Uh, and then he later, he said, oh, but, but nobody will do that. I mean, this is the same guy who <laughs> labeled, uh, labeled me uh, essentially an enemy of the police. He said it was hurting the police department by covering police board budget deficits that, that he and Barrick and Kaslin and a few others were, were directly responsible for. Uh, and, you know, you can sort of shrug that off and go, well, that's just somebody blathering on. But it, it's, this is the era of Trump. This is the era of Ford. All you need is one nutcase yes. yep. uh, who has a, a badge and a gun, you know, who, who, will, who will fly off the rails and yep. go, you know, this, this reporter is a, an enemy of the police. So the attacks were coming from, from everywhere. And the only way you can kind of deal with that is just to sort of put your head down and continue the work. Uh, you don't you don't back off because somebody said something nasty about you and because somebody's made threats against you, which which began to happen with increased. And, and here's the irony too, just to let you know, we become one Niagara makes it a lot easier for you guys to do your job. You only have one council to cover. Yeah, but it's gonna be anxious, right? I mean, yeah, constantly. You know, like just the anxiety 
thinking you're getting followed all the time. Right? Stuff well, it's, like it's the the big anxiety is when you run a when you run a big piece like that. Uh, is you you always think was there something we missed? Yeah. I mean, is there some substantial piece of the story that we didn't have that we should have had? And uh, you know, did we get something wrong somewhere? Um, and so when it publishes, there's this, especially in this case, because you know, Carmen Biangelo, Al Caslin, Bob Gale, David Barrick, uh, you know, the uh, Reno Mustachi, you know, these these actors who were involved in this in one le- one way or another, they wouldn't consent to interviews. So you're sort of waiting, like I've, so the piece has been published, we've given them the opportunity to speak, they won't. What's their reaction going to be? Uh, which was mostly silence, right? It was mostly, so, but yeah, that's where the big anxiety comes yeah. from. And it's what, not just What this, they're gonna do, right? Yeah, yeah, what's in any big piece you do, you're always kind of waiting to see like who, how are people gonna react? And in this case, you, you wanted to know, like how are these major players who are involved in, in basically in the conspiracy to get Carmen D'Angelo hired and then later give them that sweet, sweet, sweet contract extension, uh, how will they react to these pieces? And what we found out was they, uh, other than kind of throwing dirt at myself in the newspaper, we found out that what they were doing was kind of weaving a false narrative behind closed doors in confidential sessions. Um, We were getting lots of information about what was happening in those confidential sessions, which was informing a lot of our reporting. We have since, though, got our hands on an actual recording of the July 26, 2018 confidential session, and which was fascinating because the, the in ca- camera, the in camera, the in camera for our listeners, they yeah. went in camera. They go in camera. And I usually have to discuss property mm-hmm. uh, personnel issues. I mean, there's legit reasons to do it. Yep. Um, but we had continually got leaks out of these out of these meetings that were super interesting because they were telling. That's how we knew about D'Angelo's contract. That's how we knew it was unilaterally decided by Kazan himself. What we found out later was, despite the protests of some councillors, including respected members of council, like, say, uh, Wayne Redekop from Fort Erie, who said, we have to go behind closed doors because it's the only way we could speak candidly. But what we found out was what they were speaking candidly about were just lies. Like, Kazan was asked that in that meeting, did you give Carm D'Angelo this million-dollar contract? And he said, no, I wouldn't do that. I, I, something I wouldn't do. And then a month later, he, he's forced to admit it. Uh, that's the same meeting where Carm D'Angelo claimed he was Cambodia, he said, he says, oh, there's the United States, there's China, and I'm Cambodia, making this very bizarre analogy to the Vietnam War, uh, that he's sort of this innocent player in this war between counselors, uh, which had nothing to do with anything. But what it showed us was those behind-the-scenes meetings, um, that the truth was not being told, that that was an opportunity for some folk to spin a narrative in the hopes that the public would never hear it, right? You right there? Oh, yeah. Karma for making fun of my cuffs. Yeah, I guess so, eh? So, what can you do? Okay, what has this done? Um, be, listen, I mean, let's let's be honest. Um, the newspaper industry is in shambles. It's a, it's a difficult you know, period, for It's sure. a difficult period. Um, and, I mean, and to be honest, I kind of uh, don't feel sorry because, I mean, back in the day, no one took the internet seriously in the 90s oh no i mean when like, when that was that was kind of, there was a bit i mean people will talk about the decline of print advertising dollars which is the primary business model for newspapers but the first kind of well and i think the thing that kneecapped the whole industry was wasn't that content was moving online too slowly we weren't putting you know our stories online even though there were people like me who were saying no we need to have a much bigger digital presence like late 90s early aughts right it was that newspapers failed to see and you know you you can in hindsight it's easy right to say oh sh- woulda coulda shoulda yeah. but newspapers failed to see the rise of online classified advertising Kijiji eBay you know Craigslist all that kind of stuff um, so the, one of the big financial pillars of print newspapers was classified advertising right Absolutely. you you guys want to hire somebody at your companies you put an ad in the newspaper well you didn't have to do that anymore. You could either do it directly yourself, you could do it on social media, or you could go to Kijiji or something and, and post it. And newspapers, law, they were so slow as an industry out the gate, we lost it. We lost classified advertising. And that was the beginning of it. And I mean, if that, if that had been different, we'd be, in a different, we'd be having a different conversation today. But I think a story like yours just really, truly uh, reiterates the importance of the Fifth Estate. And just really drives home the point of having a free press, unlike the states, which they're owned by, 
talking head organization, left and right. It's just getting stupid now. They, they it, it depends, but see, that's that's what's interesting, right? It depends what you're talking about. So yes, I mean, it, yeah, the, all the what the all the chairs men and the you know the stuff. Um, uh, like you know, Al Benner's done recently on long-term care homes, and uh, the stuff Karina Walters done on the Bayshore GM yeah. property. I mean, it, it, all it, all the chairsmen and some of the other stuff I've done in the last couple of years. If we weren't there doing those stories, they would not be done, and you would not know about them. I mean, who's gonna? I mean, there, there's there's bloggers. Uh, there's there's sort of these laughably partisan websites yes. like the Niagara Independent. They're not doing news. They are. They have. Mar- they have political marching orders that they're mm-hmm. that they're following through. I mean, the day something like the Niagara Independent actually does legitimate reporting out of a public works committee meeting, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start to take them somewhat more seriously. Um, there are places now, uh, communities in Canada, the United States, where the newspapers have closed, and they're 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 called news deserts. There's places where there aren't reporters looking at the town council or the city council or the business community or, you know, never mind the stuff that, go, you know, sports teams and, and schools and the school boards. There's nobody looking at that. And it, that's a huge problem because that is opening the door. To, I mean, look at look at what happened. In the, right? Yes. I mean, look at what happened in the last, you know, the, the last term of regional council. I mean, that that was, you know, you know, you can say it was, you know, maybe unique in the history of the region in terms of stuff that was going on, but if we had not been in there digging in that from the Burgoyne Bridge audit and the claims that this was going to be the, the biggest scandal in the history of forever and it turned out to be essentially a nothing burger and used as a political weapon uh, to, to the CAO scandal, um, that, that wouldn't be there. You wouldn't know. And that allows actors to act in corrupt ways without ever being held to account. Um, in terms of who owns the newspapers, I mean, so something like CNN or Fox are best known because they got these talking heads. But look at the just look at the basic reporting that CNN reporters or Fox News reporters do. You'll actually find they're pretty close. They're almost the same. You know, if they're covering, if, if President Trump uh, claims that in 1775 uh, <laughs> the Revolutionary <laughs> Army took the airports yeah. back from yeah. the British, uh, th- that report yeah, across. American news agencies will be largely the same. Uh, the difference is in, in the talking the heads. Um, what, what is interesting is is the Washington Post, I mean, he's owned, owned by Bezos, owned by the guy who owns Amazon. He's a multi-billionaire. Mm-hmm. So he has all kinds of money to pour into the Washington Post. Uh, the New York Times has done pretty well the last few years, too, though not they don't have the same pockets that, that uh, Washington Post has. And But on the local level, Paper struggle, 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 and um, you know, do you guys see that talk of the town thing that was on TVO at least a few years ago? Sort of the decline of the Burgoyne era of the Standard. Oh, uh, we, I read we, we, we raised a stink because they made it sound like the Standard didn't exist. Uh, you know, after John Nickel and Company left, um, but the 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 point being is that. If the Burgoynes, for instance, had stayed, if they still own the standard, you know, in 2000, 2005, would the standard still be here today? It's one thing to knock corporate ownership, but who has the resources? Print costs are right. huge. Human resources. I mean, to do the kind of work that we've been doing is not easy and it's not cheap. Right. So you need to have financial backing to do it. Uh, it's just as likely as not that it had, had Southern not initially bought the standard, uh, that the standard wouldn't be around. And neither would the Tribune and neither would the, would the Niagara Falls Review. Um, the, the, the joke that you talk about that I, I'm deeply concerned about is the, is the prevalence of the talking heads, is, the, is, the, the, uh, is How much is, credence people give to us? Yeah, because yeah. That's, where, that's where a lot of the conversation ends up, and, yeah. and it's the same here in, in Canada. When we start, I mean, we've got an, uh, an election coming, a federal election coming. It's going to be the ugliest yeah. I think we've seen, <laughs> yeah. probably. They, they started a year and a half ago. Yeah, and so it's already, it's already uh, become very, very personal and, and awful. So um, the, the uh, problem is when news agencies go down that road and most of their broadcast or most of their newspaper is devoted to political opinion as opposed to reporting. <laughs> and I think that that has to be rebalanced. Part you of the didn't pro- change though, because I, I thought you were a, like reporting. I believe was apartisan, mm-hmm. apolitical. Supposed to be, supposed to be. I think. I mean, it's it. You know, I think one of the ways it, it really started to change was CNN, and was the dawn of the twenty-four hour news cycle. Mm-hmm. 
um, because CNN used to be it was the evening news like ABC News or yep. right. you know the Fifth Estate or uh, 60 Minutes or something. They would work on on a project and then it would air, right? And that'd be it. Now it's like it, it, they have to constantly produce material for their viewers. And for, say, for me, two occasions: Desert Storm. Yep. Yep. And then um, the World Trade Center. Yep. To me, there were two milestones in terms. I stopped watching. The, but I remember, because... I remember, do you remember when uh, John Kennedy Jr.'s plane went yep. down? Yeah. And I, I remember thinking, God, the 24-hour news cycle has lost its mind because there was a point where the plane had crashed. It was very obvious everybody was dead. They found his attache or something. Yeah, right? and, so, and then like a, suit, yeah, a suitcase or whatever suitcase. floated to the surface. And there were hours and hours and hours of like plane or helicopter footage of, of an water. empty patch of ocean saying this is around the area that it went down and there was nothing new to report um, and it's now it's infected newspapers as well because we have to do our stories right for print we have to update you on twitter we have to update facebook you have to put news hits constantly online there's a speed of it i got to see bob woodward talk in toronto a few months ago and he talked about it. he said doesn't it make you sort of batshit crazy yeah. because Part of investigative reporting is taking time to get the story right. It, it, and yes, there is a competitive um, thing where you want to be first, but if it's a choice between being first or being right, you always like, want to be right. Like the Boston bombings. Yep. CNN was so desperate to get to be out, they got it completely wrong. And it wasn't just CNN, it was no, a whole... But they were the ones that started the ball rolling. Well, no, in that case, it started on that seed. So yes, CNN got that story wrong, that got started on social media. Yes, and and so there's, there's and they reported on social media. Yeah, that, so but these hmm. these these quote unquote detect- ruined someone's life, ruined yeah. the family's well, life. These detectives on Reddit thought that they had the bombing suspect, and they started pushing it out on social media. Who ended up being a kid who committed suicide because of mental illness. That's why he was missing. Yeah, but the the so you you've got the twenty four hour news cycle. You've got social. You got social media. Who Twitter? Everybody Twitter. To get it who everybody thinks that they know everything about everything, mm-hmm. um, and then even when you produce a story, like one of the things that you know, for instance, in all the chairs men, is people would say, well, when are you going to do a story that says you know so and so has to go to jail or should be arrested? And I'm like, I that's not my that's, place. That's nice. yeah. You know, I that's I, I'm not going to unless there's you know somebody actually says it or does it. Because um, that would be reserved more for your column. The well, no, I wouldn't. You know, well, uh, so yes, an, an opinion maker could, an opinion writer could look at those stories and say, oh, you know, this is, you know, this is illegal or something, or try to opine uh, that way. Not my job as the as the as the reporter. So you have these these multiple strains of things that are happening that impact, I think, in a mostly negative way, the way in which news gets produced. Um, and we're in a real bind because if we're not on social media saying, here's what happened at regional council last night or here's what happened in the House of Commons or whatever, um, the, it, disinformation will spin out so fast. Yeah, like and discredit what you come in behind, yeah. right? And, and we also have to, we now, and the United States is even worse because Trump has elevated this to like a fine art, the, the art of misinformation. But look <laughs> at something like the SNC-Lavalin affair. Yep. We, we, we have, for the last couple of years, we, the, the inf- disinformation campaigns have largely been on the right. And that's because they're sort of a seedant, right? It's Trump, it's Ford. It's, it's this idea that facts don't matter, that if I just say something enough times, right? But you saw uh, Ontario News Now. You can't, I don't even, I, that, I will drink the ice wine if I have to talk about Ontario <laughs> News now. It is a taxpayer-funded propaganda effort for the Progressive Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. Completely unprecedented. The Liberals and the NDP had tried it in the past, and it was a joke, and everybody laughed at them. But they, the, the, they broke the matrix. They figured out how to do it this time. Um, but we now find ourselves in a position where we have to fact-check in a way we never used to have to. Because before, if you as a politician said something that was just zany or, or wrong, really, who are you saying it to? You're saying it to the TV news, the radio station, or the newspaper, maybe at a political rally. It was pretty easy to fact check. Now you can put your disinformation out on, to millions of people to on world. Twitter, and you can have a small army of, of anonymous accounts and bots and staff who do the same thing, and that becomes the narrative. That's why Daniel Dale, who used to work at the Toronto Star, who covered uh, Trump, for the star, he's now working at CNN. His entire job is just to fact check Trump. 
Right. That's all he does. <laughs> That's a full-time job. It's a full-time <laughs> job. Um, now, for instance, when the regional chair, we did it uh, a couple of times with uh, Chair Kazan, we were doing it with Chair Bradley, when they give the state of the region, we're like live fact-checking them. You have to. And that, you know, to your, to your earlier point, I mean, that takes time away from doing sort of more fundamental reporting because at the, we're at a point where we can't just trust the politicians to get up to a microphone and say, X, Y, Z, and we are thinking how much of that is actually true. Which is terrible, right? So what has this story done for the standard? Um, I, I think that it's, I mean, it hasn't, certainly hasn't hurt our numbers. Uh, it's, it's done, done, it's been very well received, very well read. Um, I, I think it has highlighted to the community why you need robust daily reporting. Because I'll be honest with you, I, 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 Picked up my subscription. You know this. I'm well, you, you 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 started. I think it was you who started that thing on on Twitter where you took a picture of yourself. With, was it with your daughter? Yeah. With the newspaper. Yeah. And then pe other people started doing it. Yeah. 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 So, and the reason why was basically, um, I mean, I'm talking years and years and years and years ago, like 20 years ago. Um, I mean, the you didn't have a daughter 20 years. No, ago. I did not. No, no. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 uh, how old is your kid? <laughs> she's she's a very small 20 year old. Yeah, exactly. um, was, I mean, 30? the joke was the standard was called the the substandard. Oh yeah, it, like it was yeah, just. Yeah. But I think you guys have gotten the credibility down because this like I I, I mean, right? Like it was one of those like okay, oh my god, it's something that I can read and go okay, like because I'm I'm just a very pragmatic and practical person. Mm -hmm. And what I do, um, and then I guess secondly, ignorance. I don't know much about the industry. Um, what has this done for your career? What has is mm. is this your fork in the road moment that you're going to look back it twenty got years him on from a now? Solid podcast. Like you going? Yeah, you, you well, it got him. Is on. it going this to production? This is my career, is my career highlight. Is, it going, right is yeah. it going to the big screen? Yeah, <laughs> highlight reel. Um, you know, it's, you know what's funny? Well, I started in the Standard in '98, and uh, I was a rookie crime reporter at the time. And yeah, yeah, the, the substandard. That that started because that started really after the Burgoynes sold the paper. Yes, yes, that's right. There was the strike. I mean, I came in in July '98. That I can't remember how the strike had only been over probably for six months. Somebody, one of your listeners, would probably say, "No, it was less or more or less than that." But uh, by the time I got there, most of the people who had been on strike were gone. They had left. There was only a few reporters left. A couple of editors left, and they would be gone in in fairly short order. And so I think that was part of the community's reaction because I mean the strike was, from my understanding, was quite nasty, and there were you know there were pickets and 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 the public were unhappy with the fact that they were losing sort of family ownership. Uh, the Burgoynes made the choice to sell though. I mean that's always the Burgoynes never took the heat, right? It was, right. It was sort of the editorial department for whatever reason took the heat. So I mean there was always really good um, in my you know I've been there for 20 years. I mean I, I've personally I've got like 27 Ontario newspaper awards. Um, we, we win awards every year for the work that we've done since I've started. And that, that was unbroken. It was happening before I got there. Uh, it's, it's happened since the standard has been around for like 124 mm -hmm. years. I mean, it's got a long history of, of excellent investigative reporting. What did happen, though, was when we got really badly cut back. I mean, we were owned by Post Media and Sun. And they, they, it was under those two owners that we really saw the, the dramatic, dramatic cutbacks to where we go from like, you know, 40 to five. Um, and we just sort of decided as a newsroom with the, the handful of folk that were left, nobody came to us and said, this is what we're gonna do. We just kind of evolved and, and we each decided to dedicate ourselves more to investigative reporting and, and rather than kind of collapse and say, well, we're just gonna cover fluff, which would be super easy to do. Uh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna spend the time and the energy to sort of up our game. Um, in terms of what all the chairs men has done for my career, I mean, obviously it hasn't hurt it, um, and and I'm involved in some some bigger projects with the with Torstar now, um, as a result of that work. But it, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to say. It's it's not like the old days. Like if this was 20 years ago, and I'd produce this story, like I'd have my own investigative team by now, you know, or I'd be at the in the Toronto Star newsroom or or whatever. Um, but that doesn't happen now just because there's not that many jobs. Um, and, and that really is, I mean, I just keep coming back to the point. What we do is so important for, uh, for democracy to function on the local level, provincial totally level, national level. Totally if we're not there to do it, you know, you're going to find uh, your community or your province or your country is going to be in deep, deep trouble. And uh, Stephanie Nolan just left the Globe and Mail. The Globe and Mail just had a whole bunch of yep. staff layoffs and buyouts. 
Stephanie is maybe the best reporter in the country. Uh, she's a foreign correspondent, or was for, for 20 years. She was the person who was, who was letting Canada know what was happening in Africa and Asia and, and you know, Latin America. I mean, she's a fantastic reporter. And she put out, when she left just the other day, she put out a tweet asking for people to pay for quality journalism. Like, you've got to pay for it. You're not, if you want it for free, you're going to get the Niagara Independent. If, if you want something that is actually going to be useful and constructive and informative, then you want your, your daily newspaper to be doing that work. So where my career goes from here uh, is a very long way of saying I don't know. We'll see. Well, the podcast just happened. Yeah, it just so happened. We so we're laughing yeah. like a month from well, now. Well, you know what? Uh, we, we're probably going to uh, ask for you to come back uh, sure. again. Um, that was enlightening to say yeah, at least. Was, I think it's being listen, yeah, it was to great. all of our listeners as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, if so. you guys want to keep chatting and just cut us up into a couple episodes. We can I think we're going to do that as it is. But yeah. wait, how many? How much time are we at there? 50 minutes. Wow. Oh, my. It's been 50 <laughs> minutes? Really? 50 minutes. Oh, right my now. God. It hasn't felt like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> He's late. Oh yeah, I'm half very late. late. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. It went by quick, though. That's yeah, a good, thanks. good uh, no, no, um, a, But, yeah, maybe possibly... Oh, for you know, sure. Six months down the road. Well, we're you know we got we've got the the Ombudsman's report is coming probably by the end of the summer. I'm expecting it maybe by the end of the month or early August. We'll see. Yeah. But I mean that's going to be, I mean that's going to be the last kind of major piece of the puzzle uh, that people are waiting for. So we'll see that that'll be a big thing. And then maybe we'll yeah. have you on after that. Yeah, yeah it'd so. be great because that, I mean when that when that drops, you know I won't sleep again for right for a little while till that's finished. And then you know I've got some some there's some other big projects that are coming on healthcare on uh, Niagara College uh, and the college system in Ontario and some other things that we got working on. So there'll be lots to talk about. Awesome. We'll definitely, we'll definitely have, well, thank you very much for My coming pleasure. on. Yeah, uh, thanks to our you sponsors, Brand Boulevard. Brand Boulevard has uh, given you a, I know, a notebook right there. <laughs> I know you probably don't have one, a notebook and a pen. No, never do. No. Never do. Uh, so oh, they, see, uh, all of our guests get a notebook and a nice pen from Brand Boulevard. That's very fancy. Yeah, we have sponsors. Did you know that? That's crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and you. thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, Where can they listen to us? Spotify. You know, there you go. <laughs> you know, Spotify. Twitter. 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 Yeah. Just looking over. <laughs> All at, your yeah. favorites. Oh, Facebook. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, everybody. Help us help you stay informed. Ciao. Out. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast, and NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. Hey, 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 hey. Produced by Crier Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.